Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, a conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. I'm your host, Chaz Robbins, and today on our episode, we're looking at Bonhoeffer's legacy. Scott, good place to start probably would be, well, what's your favorite line of Bonhoeffer's? Favorite line? Well, you know, everybody quotes that famous translation uh, in Cost of Discipleship, when Jesus bids a man come, he Mm. bids him come and die, which uh, isn't so fancy in German. Uh, That's a poetic line in English. The, The German was just more, every summons of Jesus leads to death. Uh, but I think, uh, I think that some of his stuff in life together uh, about wish dreams and the church um, uh, is one of the best ones. Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. I mean, what he's getting at is that many people come into churches with ideas and dreams and visions and hopes and expectations. And not only are they discouraged by the reality of Christian community and churches, but they impose that vision on others and it exacerbates their frustration and causes other people to be uncomfortable. And Bonhoeffer, of course, had lived this in his profound experiences in Zingst and Finkenwalde in this uh, underground sort of underground seminary that he created for the confessing church type people and they learned to live together and and he taught them to accept one another as they really were rather than as other people ought to be yeah you know in all of Bonhoeffer's stuff and you read him and especially life together it's so clear that he doesn't write or think about theology in a purely abstract or in a way that's only accessible in the ivory tower, but it always has its roots in the reality. And I love that quote. And, and I've uh, you know wrestled through that as well as this idealism of you know, what the Christian community could be versus the reality of what humans make it to be in perfect people living together. You know, he could do abstract technical academic theology. His dissertation on um, uh, Sanctorum Communio, uh, you know, the communion of the saints, and his habilitation, which is the second German dissertation uh, that someone has to write. Um, Both of those works were intense pieces of scholarship, philosophical, theological, and sociological. He had a lot of interest in sociology. And he was a professor at the University of Berlin, but came to the conviction, or he wasn't a professor, he was teaching, Mm -hmm. a lecturer. Um, He just came to the conviction and through his life opportunities that he wanted to explore the interface of theology, the academic world, 
the church and the nation. So he 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 never really then produced those academic pieces that uh, that other theologians in Germany came to produce. And as a result, I don't know how many people know this. Bonhoeffer is not a big uh, theologian in the German theological scene. Hmm. Ah, that's interesting. They study they study uh, Moltmann and Pannenberg and uh, those sort of sorts, but Bonhoeffer is a little bit <clears throat> he's a little bit of uh, a curiosity piece. <clears throat> well, how about before we get any further, uh, for those of our listeners who have never heard of, of Bonhoeffer, you know he was in around the Second World War, uh, uh, like we said, uh, a theologian, but also a pastor. Um, but what's important for us to know about Bonhoeffer if we've never heard of him? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, provides for most of us a powerful example of theological integrity, of putting his life and body and whole person on the line for what he believed. And so from that perspective, we, we, uh, we explore Bonhoeffer, and he has been, for me, uh, a theological companion since my sophomore year in college when I read his book on discipleship the first time. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer grew up in what we would call in our world a sort of an elitist conservative family. He, he lived, his father was a famous uh, professor at the University of Berlin. And he lived uh, a life of the elite that were privileged, and they were anti-populist, so that when when Hitler came along uh, and proposed a, a sort of radical revolution of not uh, nationalistic socialism of, of fascism, um, Bonhoeffer's family reacted, and it wasn't exclusively on the basis of altruistic motives. But they realized the implications for the privileged society of the elite and the conservative in that sense, the aristocrats, uh, for someone like Hitler. They, they realized that if he uh, took over, they would lose their status and their privilege in society. So they were immediately opposed to Hitler. Over time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself uh, opposed Hitler on a number of grounds, uh, and not very, not very often in an articulate way, or at least as in writing that I'm aware of, did he oppose it because he was a political conservative in, in the German sense, not in the American sense. But he opposed he opposed Hitler for what he was doing to the church in infiltrating the church, demanding its theology. He opposed Hitler because of what he was doing with Jews. He opposed Hitler because of what he was doing to the nation. And ultimately, Bonhoeffer decided uh, that he had to enter into the German condition. Uh, he was in the United States at the time and in conversation with professors at Union Theological Seminary. He decided that he had a choice, and that was to save the German nation uh, uh, and lose the church or save the church and lose the German nation. And so he entered back into the German condition. And uh, as a result, uh, he was underground and he got a special job uh, through his brother-in-law, Klaus von Danany, so that he could participate sort of a, as a counter espionage guy. Mm -hmm. uh, and he used that time, it depends on who you listen to, he used that time to 
participate in ec the ecumenical movement and to communicate with non-Germans with the Western, uh, you know, sort of the United States side of the de uh, debate, the allies, uh, he used that time to communicate with them uh, what was going on inside Germany in conspiracies to undermine Hitler's authority and what the authorities and what leadership would look like when World War II came to an end. Yeah. So, he just had a real fascinating, I mean, so much going on. I know, you know, you brought up the, the confessing church and, and his role in the ecumenical uh, work. And uh, in the biography I'd been working through on Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer I, I came across a great line that's really one of my favorite ones recently of his. Um, and they asked him about why he wasn't willing to just fully commit into being a part of the German church, but wanted to work in this confessing church. And he said, if you board the wrong train, it's no use running along the corridor in the opposite direction. Uh, and I think his life is, it was just a reflection of that. It's so interesting to see how uh, it all fit together for him. Yeah. And this is where his integrity and his honesty and his willingness to put his life on the line is all about. I mean, he believed that Hitler was destroying the German church and the German nation. Yeah. And so he he got involved. Uh -huh. You know, he 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 worked to preserve the church from what's called the German Christians or the Deutsche Christen, and they were compromised at a deep level with uh, with Hitler. And oh, the story there is just uh, it's just so depressing. Uh, the church's complicity in in the powers. Uh, so he opposed what was going on there, and then he he worked from inside to find new solutions. He worked with others who were against what you know that were against what was going on, and they began to think about ways of sabotaging uh, Hitler's power and trying to uh, construct a Germany where the church would be preserved at, with its integrity. So, yeah. And one of the most interesting things for me is his foresight and he, how he was able to see implications of decisions that church leaders were making that the rest of the people and leaders weren't weren't seeing. And I'm curious if you, if you have any insight on that. What, why do you think he was able to have uh, such foresight and, and vision um, as a leader? Well, Chaz, you uh, you sound like you're reading Eric Metaxas. <laughs> it's true. I am. Uh, Metaxas is uh, uh, not uh, not exactly the favorite uh, biographers of Bonhoeffer, okay. uh, according to the Bonhoeffer scholars. Hmm. And I find myself quite frustrated at times with Eric Metaxas. But, uh, Bonhoeffer was not alone in perceiving the evil of Hitler and the the looming clouds of what was happening to German society and to the German church. Uh, because he was uh, exterminated by Hitler and because his books became so popular in the United States, we tend to heroize him mm. into one of a, you know, one of the very few, if not the only one yeah. who saw what was going on. But there were lots of Germans who perceived what was going on. And this has been uh, expounded in other biographies, uh, including the great biography by his friend Eberhard uh, Betke, but also by another person whose father was an associate of Bonhoeffer, and his name is Ferdinand Schlingensiepen. And uh, 
he's called attention to the number of people who perceived what was going on in Germany. So while Bonhoeffer did perceive. Yeah, he uh, wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one. Hmm. Well, what about the group? I mean, what do you think it was in that whole group of people who were, were seeing decisions and, um, you know, the the effects and consequences of those decisions from a different angle? Um, well, you know, um, every culture, every society that's going through major shifts has people who perceive way in advance the implications of what's going on. So, for instance, today you have some people who are pretty sharp uh, who are talking about what would happen if uh, Bernie Sanders or if Donald Trump, let's just stay neutral here, were to become president. They're, they're very perceptive about implications. A lot of people don't believe them. Uh, they're, you know, let's wait to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, there are others who know what's going to happen and they, are proven right over time. Bonhoeffer was in that group who perceived socially what was going on. They perceived ideologically what was going on. They perceived morally what was going on. They perceived ethnically and racially what was going on. And because, you know, Bonhoeffer's a theologian, he perceived theologically and morally, you know, he wrote books on ethics. Uh, and he examined what was going on in Germany in light of the Lutheran tradition and in light of the Bible and just and saw right to the core of the moral problems of surrendering everything to uh, a corrupt moral, a corrupt leader like like Hitler. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's fascinating how he did it. I imagine part of that ability for him was his way he was raised in his family that helped him always think through things well critically and um you know with sound mind and, and judgment on issues that the, the world is facing you know um yeah and i think this is a place to say that bonhoeffer's family while it was uh, nominally christian they were not church-going people and he was studying theology at the university of berlin uh under Great, great scholars like uh, uh, Adolf Harnack, whose sons were friends of Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. and um, and theologians uh, who are who are not known today. Uh, before he really made any kind of radical commitment to participate in church, and in some ways, his first serious church attendance was as a youth pastor in Germany, mm-hmm. and then in Barcelona. So. Um, his theological instincts uh, did not come from a family no. setting so yeah. much, although his mother was a serious thinker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a twin and his sister Sabina, and he had many, many very interesting conversations about theology. Hmm. So as you look at Bonhoeffer's work and his theology, you mentioned you, know, you read the discipleship book and in college as a sophomore, how has his theology influenced you? Yeah. Um, I had a friend of a former colleague at North Park University uh, named Joel Willits, who uh, is a New Testament professor. And Joel um, and I talked theology and New Testament all the time. 
and then uh, I left but uh, and, and came to Northern Seminary. But Joel had never read Bonhoeffer, and he began to read Bonhoeffer uh, just in my last couple of years when I was at North Park. And he came to me one day, and he says, I had no idea how big of an influence Bonhoeffer had on you. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah. I said, I bring him up quite a bit. But here, here's what happened with me. When I was a college student, uh, I was a, a reader, as I am now, and I, I bought, uh, as a college student, discipleship. It is now, uh, it was called at that time, The Cost of Discipleship. I bought his book on ethics, and I bought letters and papers from prison. I was absolutely blown away by Bonhoeffer's discipleship book. And I know as a college sophomore, you know, what am I, 20 years old, um, I, I didn't perceive what I was reading, but I knew I was in touch with a great man and a great thinker whose ideas resonated deeply with me. So I began to read Bonhoeffer. I read his ethics at that time, and I really did not know what in the world was going on in that book. It's a pretty intense mm-hmm. piece, and it was disorganized at the time. It's mm-hmm. been put together in a beautiful edition today in the new Bonhoeffer's works. And I also read letters and papers from prison. And I realized at that time, and I, by this time I was probably a college junior, I realized at that time that uh, that most people's perception in the United States among the circles that I was walking in, uh, which would be conservative evangelicals, looked at Bonhoeffer very negatively. They saw him as the author of the death of God and his secular Christianity and, and all these things, uh, religionless Christianity that he talked about in letters and papers from prison. So that last publication sort of destroyed the brilliance of the earlier Bonhoeffer who talked about discipleship. I, I was addicted to the early Bonhoeffer. I, I didn't think that they were treating the letters and papers from prison very accurately, but I didn't, I didn't know the scholarship. Mm-hmm. I went to seminary. And when I brought up Bonhoeffer, I was, uh, I was taken back by the way people responded to Bonhoeffer. I thought this was a great man, and the people that I would bring him up with thought he was a terrible man and a heretic and probably wasn't even a Christian sort of thing. Hmm. Well, I'm grateful that Bonhoeffer's theology has come back into perspective, that that there has been in the United States a core of scholars who were determined to collect all his writings and to produce a brilliant 17-volume set of the works of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm also proud to say I've read every word in every volume um, because I I like to read Bonhoeffer. They collected his letters. uh, They collected his, his college papers. They collected his essays, his sermons, his lectures, all these things that he gave, along with the major books that he published. So um, I'm grateful that he's back on the scene. Uh, I was, I have to tell you this, I was a bit taken back uh, when conservative evangelical like Eric Metaxas took him on and turned him into sort of a hero for American evangelicals. Yeah. 
I know enough about Dietrich Bonhoeffer that he would not be comfortable with that. He would not fit with American evangelicalism. Uh, he was a Lutheran. He did not like the word pietistic, but he was a man who prayed and read his Bible in a very typical, serious theological fashion and spiritual fashion that was characteristic of German Lutheran pastors. But Bonhoeffer was no evangelical. He had some conservative themes. He was more like Karl Barth. He liked Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, so any notion that Bonhoeffer would fit with us in the evangelical world today in the United States uh, just must be dispensed with. He was not, in that sense, one of us. Yeah, he was. He was, he was a different kind of thinker. Huh. So, what do you think the, the was the cause of the interest to to well be yeah, reengaged with Bonhoeffer and, and what he was saying and, and his life and how he lived? All right, here, here's the thing. So in the 19th, late 70s and early 80s, when I brought up Bonhoeffer at a place like Trinity, I was rebuffed. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he wasn't a guy that we needed to spend our time thinking about uh, because of his letters and papers from prison. So all of a sudden now you look in the middle of the 2010s and you got Eric Metaxas, a conservative evangelical, turning Bonhoeffer into a hero. And you have all these evangelical Christians now all of a sudden reading this a biography. And I have to say that it's a socio-political interpretation of Bonhoeffer that allowed conservative evangelicals to push against the rise of the more leftist political thinking in the United States during the era mm -hmm. of, let's face it, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. So he, he became a, a foil politically to critique the current trends uh, politically. And morally, so he becomes a hero of the conservative. All right, so, all right, Bonhoeffer has some themes that can be exploited that way. But if you look at Bonhoeffer in a bigger perspective, he is not, that is not Bonhoeffer. Uh, if he were teaching in the United States, he'd be at a place like Union Seminary or Duke or, uh, you know, one, one of the mainline seminaries. He wouldn't be teaching at Gordon-Conwell or Trinity or Fuller. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd be teaching where the mainliners are. Uh, that's, that, was, that was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, having said that, uh, mainline theology uh, in the first half of the 20th century was Bartian. Uh, so he, he fits in that circle. He, he would be very comfortable wherever people are talking about Karl Barth. Mm -hmm. uh, and Barth liked Bonhoeffer. Mm -hmm. Uh, they didn't agree on everything, but they, they liked one another. And they had a good relationship, yeah. Yeah. Huh. So what do you think Bonhoeffer, if you would see the church, not just in America, but the you know, capital C church at large today, what do you think his uh, critique, his praise, um, just his view and words for the church today? Well, that's a that's a hard thing to, to say mm -hmm. I, uh, because he didn't live in our world. Sure. I think Bonhoeffer would be very critical of, of the lack of attention to Bible in contemporary Christianity. I think he would be very uh, warm toward interest in justice and peace, and uh, he would favor a lot of the sides of people who are concerned with social justice. Um, I think Bonhoeffer uh, would have had a very uh, noble 
uh, response to trends in theology that are post-Barthian, say Torrance. I think he would like a guy a bit, uh, he would like in some ways, he would like people like uh, Stanley Hauerwas. Uh, so I think, I think he'd fit in, in those circles of big ideas, big thinkers who, who see the big picture about Christianity and its role in society. Um, he wasn't an Anabaptist like, uh, like Yoder or Hauerwas. He would be more, uh, in the line with Niebuhr and, uh, although he wasn't a liberal like Niebuhr uh, or like, um, um, Kuiper, in, in that sense of having a, 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 a belief that we should be working for uh, good and for justice through political means, but he would see the church as an institution that had a witness to, to culture, to society, to the government, uh, and, and of course, I think he would have had um, a global perspective today as well. He always had an interest in the ecumenical movement and the church around the world. Yeah, I think he'd be really encouraged by a lot of the ecumenical uh, work being done in the, the you know the area of missions and of um, on coming together for the sake of you know, expanding the kingdom through mission work and sending agencies and, and such things like that for sure. You know, um, there's another side to Bonhoeffer, and I I've taken a, a firm stand on this. I think Bonhoeffer was a pacifist, and I think he remained a pacifist. I don't think he was ever involved uh, intimately or intentionally in any plot to kill Hitler. Uh, I think he knew about it. Uh, clearly, he knew about it. Uh, but I, don't, I think he remained a pacifist. I think Bonhoeffer would stand aghast and would be working against political or uh, military buildup, military invasions and war mongering that is taking place among nations today. He would be fighting against all of that through ecumenical groups that would be trying to bring peace mm -hmm. uh, and concord between nations uh, through a deliberation and consultations. Wow. Well, I think it's important for us and all of us, you know, listeners and, and trying to, to think through what's the best for the future of Christianity, to wrestle through Bonhoeffer and his works and his life and uh, his influence and his legacy. You've mentioned you know, a number of sources so far. Uh, what would you say would be just some suggested places to go, even some of Bonhoeffer's own work, to get a balanced view yeah, yeah. Um, for who he is and, and, and how we can wrestle with his legacy? Well, I think, I think uh, all serious pastors, theologians, and Christians who have an interest in Bonhoeffer should read one good biography. Now, I think the best biography is a thousand-page doorstopper by Eberhard Betke called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, A Biography. I, I, I've read it twice. I think it's the best. I also think Charles Marsh's uh, book on Bonhoeffer, his recent book on Bonhoeffer, is a very good biography, although I don't agree with him. He he has uh, too many suggestions that Bonhoeffer may have been gay. It just it distracts, I think, mm -hmm. from Bonhoeffer. But I think everybody should read one biography to get the big picture of him. And so Betka could be one. Uh, Metaxas could be one. Uh, Charles Marsh could be one. Um, A Strange Glory is the title, I think, of, of Marsh's book. But it, it, it doesn't do any good, in my opinion, 
to read Bonhoeffer's biographies and to think, therefore, you know the guy. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is an opportunity to get the big picture so that you can read his own works. And I believe that the place to begin with Bonhoeffer is to read his book, Life Together. And then if you have, then if you can, then I think you should read his book on discipleship. It's a heavier tome, a little bit more dense. And I also always recommend that people try to read uh, his uh, letters and papers from prison, Mm -hmm. which I think are fascinating because they take you right into the prisons where Bonhoeffer was writing. And they and they take you right to his heart, his struggles, his doubts, his hopes, uh, in his relationship with Maria von Wedemeyer, uh, his fiance, uh, his relationship to his sister, his brothers, to Klaus von Denanyi, to Betka and everybody else. You find out what's going on in his life. So I, I would encourage people to read a biography with the intent of then reading one, two, or three of his major books. And then I think people will have a firmer perspective on who Bonhoeffer was. Yeah, and for you listeners, I'll include all of those in the description bar if you're interested in um, getting on Amazon and, and grabbing one of those biographies and some of his original work. Scott, before we go, any closing thoughts on Bonhoeffer? Well, I think Bonhoeffer's book, Discipleship, which has the great discussion of costly grace, mm-hmm. uh, which is very Lutheran, you know, is, is it's both grace and a demand. Uh, then also it has that great exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, the missionary discourse of Jesus, realized that these were his lectures at the seminary. Uh, I think those are great. That's a great thing to read in our world as a challenge for us to become better Christians, deeper disciples by listening to the voice of Jesus. Uh, he, he will help, he will, Bonhoeffer will point us to Jesus and get us to read the gospels and to get us to listen to the Bible and Jesus more carefully. So I'm hoping that, uh, that people will take up the challenge of, of reading Bonhoeffer himself to understand the greatness of the man and the example that he gives us of someone who laid his life on the line because he believed something was morally uh, corrupt and he fought fought against it with justice on his side. I agree. And I think if you take up that challenge, uh, you will be benefited. And we hope today it's been a benefit for you to learn maybe a little bit more about Bonhoeffer and his legacy and uh, help equip you to learn about him so that you and your context can help the kingdom take root in how it's taken root from the very beginning throughout all of history and um, continuing on today. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you have a great day.